So as I was working through, these, through this passage this week and thinking about a lot of, of my preaching, and, and a lot of times, hopefully you hear me talking a lot about God's love for us, about God's amazing love for us, this unexplainable, this amazing love that God has for us. But also, as I was working through this passage, I was reminded again, and, and this is something I, sometimes I feel I need to say more, that also God is holy, that God is holy and righteous, that sin of our lives, he can't just overlook it. He can't just act like it doesn't happen because he's holy. While I was reading through this text, I'm reminded again of just how holy God is. You know, we talk about God being slow to anger, mercy and compassionate, rich in love. We say these things about God, but also this morning we are reminded that, that God is holy. You see, the, these leaders of, of Israel, these Jewish leaders, they had gotten way off track with God's temple. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, of, of coming to draw close to God. And imagine what it was like with, with all these animals. I mean, heads of cattle and sheep and, and birds and people selling and bartering and, and exchanging money and completely different than what it was meant to be. I mean, you can see, like this, and it's probably in the, in the court of the Gentiles, if you have this idea of the temple, you have the Holy of Holies, and you had the holy place for the people, the men of Israel, and you had the women, and then you had the Gentile court. So we're talking probably in the outer spot where people were coming and Actually, all these animals are set up where, where the Gentiles, the people who, who were supposed to be able to draw close to God, is right in their place. So you can imagine trying to, to pray or to worship God while all this is going on, all this noise, and maybe even filled with, with animals. You couldn't even meet there. So you can see the difference. You can see of how badly things have got from the way they were supposed to be. But I also see Jesus, when he comes in here into the temple and he starts driving them out, there's some other things going on. Now, if we remember from the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark and, and Luke, that he says when he cleaned out the temple, he, he was actually quoting Isaiah and Jeremiah. He says, my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a cave or a den of robbers. I think what Jesus is getting at is that those guys, the, the, the people of the temple, they had, they had skewed things. They began to take advantage of the people who came to worship during the Passover. Now, maybe this is new to some of you, but actually during the Passover, people would come, Jewish people who lived in other parts of the Mediterranean, they would come from, from all over to gather in Jerusalem to worship God at the Passover, to celebrate the Passover feast. And so you got these people coming from all over, but part of the... the, the festival was bringing sacrifice to make themselves to, to draw close to God again. So you had all these people and they have to have these sacrifices, but you can imagine if you came, say, from Rome, thousands of miles by sea, you can imagine how difficult it would be to bring a cow or a sheep. And so they would come and they would buy these things there. But I think it's, it ended up being something like Disneyland in the sense of I don't know if anybody here has ever been to Disneyland or Disney World, but when you go there, they know you're there and you're not going to get the stuff anywhere else. <laughs> like if you bring kids, they know that they can charge you $50 for a stuffed Mickey because you're in Disney World. Whereas you might be able to buy that thing on Amazon for $5. I think the same thing was happening here. It was extortion. It was people were coming and they were charging exorbitant amount of, of money for, for, a, for an ox or for a bull or for sheep, or for, or for doves. So these guys, these money changers, were making a lot of money. But before we get too angry with the money changers, 
also, too, this is part of a bigger system. The, re- the religious leaders had allowed them to be there. So the guys who were supposed to be looking after the spiritual health of Israel allowed this market to develop in the temple. They were part of the problem. So when Jesus says that, in the other Gospels, when he says that my house is to be a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of robbers, I think he's getting at the point that this was corrupt. That there were people who were making money on the worship of faithful others. But there's also this point here in John's Gospel where Jesus, he says that, you know, he comes and he says that you have made my, the house of my father into a house of merchandise. So not only was there a problem with the way they were doing things, but also the fact that of where they were doing these things. Selling, trading, bartering, buying, all this stuff, they, it was the wrong place to, to have it be done in the temple. He's saying this stuff shouldn't be here, it should be somewhere else. I don't think at this point, I don't think he was challenging so much the, the sacrificial system. He was saying, but this is the wrong place for it. Wrong place to be buying and selling, to be haggling over prices and yelling at each other. So it's no wonder to me that Jesus takes cords and he makes a whip out of it and he tears the whole thing down. Now maybe some of you, this is, this is an uneasy picture of Jesus for you. You know, you're used to Jesus the shepherd. Jesus calmly and flowingly walking through green pastures, carrying a cute lamb in his arms. We, see, we, think, we think often about Jesus the shepherd, but right now, we see the Lion of Judah. We see a man on fire for God. A man who's on fire for the mission of God. For God's mission to bring this good news to the world. A man who's on fire for the holiness of God and for the house of God. We see a wild Jesus here. A Jesus who is, who is making whips and driving animals out of the temple. One man driving a herd of animals out. And all the, all the people who were selling trying to corral him back in and yet he still drives them out. A man who, who throws over the money bowls. Who turns over tables. We see the passion, a man on fire for God here. And the the disciples remembered, zeal for my Father's house consumes me. They They make this link with Scripture. We see that Jesus is is more than just our idea of the Lamb of God, as important as that is. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is also the Lion of Judah. A man on fire. You see, it was right for him to do this. It was right. This, this anger that he has is righteous anger. It's right for him to be angry about these things. Because the temple, the, the leaders of the Jewish people, the religious leaders, they'd gotten off track. They got distracted with what, about the animals and about the money they were making. So much so that they even brought it into the temple to make it, quote-unquote, more convenient for people. They were distracted. The whole, the whole sacrificial system became about animals and sacrifice. They forgot that it was connection with God. It's about bringing people closer to the living God. So as I see this passage this morning, I realize first that it reminds me again that God is holy. 
that Jesus is holy and he's a man on fire. Zeal for his father's house consumes him. The troubling thing for me, the troubling thing for me is that the religious leaders didn't get it. The guys who are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel were furious. Rather than cheering Jesus on like, yes, finally, thank you, God, they were upset. They were, they were furious with him. So much so that they asked, you, they asked him, by what sign do you have authority to do these things? Because they had a lot to lose. I mean, first of all, Passover was like, it was like the Super Bowl of Jewish festivals. People would come from all over. I mean, Jerusalem would swell to like two or three times its size. People would come from all over. And it was a prosperous time for people who had inns, people who, had, who sold food and things, people like time for the, for the temple. It was a prosperous time for them. And Jesus runs them all out, and you can just see them. Like, this is going to cut into profits. How are we going to make up these funds we're losing? But they also had to lose the fact that, that they were embarrassed by Jesus. Jesus is calling them on this. Saying that what you've done here, what you've made of the temple, it's wrong. And in a culture of shame and honor, where honor is like the currency with which you trade, these guys have lost a lot of honor here. They've had a lot to lose. But the interesting thing for me is that these leaders don't ask, I wonder if there's something to this. Hmm, Maybe God is telling us something here. They don't even ask that. They don't remember the words of Malachi. When he said, suddenly the Lord will come into his temple. The one whom you've been seeking, he will come. The messenger of the covenant, the one whom you desire, is coming, says the Lord Almighty. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand in his presence? Because he's like a refiner's fire. And like, a, like a, one who cleans with soap. Like one who sits and purifies and refines silver. One who will, who will purify the Levites, the priests, and refine them like gold or silver. They forgot that the prophets spoke of these things, that one would come, that one day God would show up in his temple suddenly. They forgot the scriptures. And they refused to follow him. I began, as I was thinking about this, I began to see some connections too with our society. That people still refuse to follow Jesus. You know, as a church, I feel it. I don't know if you do. Maybe you do as well. But I feel rising antagonism between our culture and the church. People who, who get upset with us because we say what we think is true. That as we read the word of God, that, there, that God has given us boundaries for sexuality and for relationships. God has given us a way to live in terms of integrity, in terms of faithfulness, of loving others beyond ourselves. And yet people don't like this because it, because it means they'd have to change the way that they live. The troubling thing is we live in a world that, in a society now marked by two isms. The first is individualism. 
And now don't get me wrong, there are good points about individualism. But hyper-individualism I'm talking about here, this idea that nobody tells me what to do. Nobody makes up my own mind but me. Sounds a lot like pride, doesn't it? The other one is relativism. The idea that truth is relative. That we don't really know what's actually true, we only have our idea of what's true. So, you hear people say it like this, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, there are some things that are a matter of of understanding or a matter of, well, I disagree with you at my opinion. But there are some things that are true regardless of what we believe about them. There are some things that are just true. I believe that the gospel is true regardless of what you believe about it. The thing is, people use relativism and individualism to say, well, we can just agree to disagree on this. That's your truth, and I'll have my truth. The trouble is, there is truth. I think sometimes people just use this as an excuse to live the, the way they damned well please. But the thing is, too, is that this relativism, it has changed things. For as much as it makes things difficult, it is the world we live in. It doesn't change what's true, but it does change the way people hear what's true. And we have to respond to that. We have to respond. We can't just keep saying things like, well, the Bible says so. Maybe a few generations ago, that held water with people. I don't know if you guys have experienced this, but it doesn't seem to me like that holds the same water that it used to. I still believe that it's as true as it is because the Bible says so. But unfortunately, people we talk to doesn't act the same. I believe that we are moving back to a time, time similar to the early church, when what we say is important, but what we live or the way we live is actually becoming even more important. Because regardless of what people may say about faith or what the Bible says, it's hard for them to argue with the way that we live. When we live out the gospel, when we live out what Jesus teaches, it's harder to argue with that. I think about the first century, the the church, the early church, and the ways that they prayed for people. I believe that we are returning to a time when it's not going to be by profound arguments, though those do help. It's going to be about prayer, about the Spirit moving in people's lives, the Spirit changing people's hearts, opening them up to the gospel. It's going to be about us living faithfully, about our lives matching up with what we believe. And then, when we have the opportunity, when somebody does finally say, you know, why do you do that? Why do you give away 10% of your income? Why are you so generous with people? Why do you take Sunday morning and go sit in church? Then we have the opportunity, the chance to explain to them our faith. Now, I'm not saying you need to have a dissertation ready on theological truth. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying, having some answer for them. Well, I I go to church because I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And begin working out from there. See, it's troubling for me is that the religious leaders didn't get it. But it makes me think about our culture as well, that they hear the gospel and People just say, well, that's true for you, but not true for me. 
Well, <laughs> regardless of what you think about it, it, I believe it's the truth. And truth doesn't really change by what we agree or what we disagree. The thing is, as I'm realizing, as I'm reading through this story, as I've been working through it this week, is that people have different response to God. The, the religious leaders, I, I would say they refused to see who Jesus was. Some people just struggle. They can't see the forest for the trees. But at the same time, some people really do respond. Like the disciples. Those guys start soaking it up. So the religious leaders, again, they challenge Jesus. They say, who gives you, or show us some sign by what authority you do this. Show us some sign by what authority you just ruined our best money-making opportunity of the year. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it. In three days I will raise it. Now, John gives us a clue here. He says that the disciples remembered that he said this after he had risen again from the dead, and they began to make connections, and they realized that Jesus was talking about his body. But the religious leaders, they don't get it. They say, who are you? You are going to, if we destroy this temple, you, you are going to raise it in three days? Come on, fella. Who do you think you are? It took us 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to build it in three days? See, they didn't get it. They didn't get what Jesus was talking about. They missed the truth. It's as if they were talking kind of like this. Tracy and I, we can tell you some about what it means to talk like this. <laughs> they were talking about bricks and mortar. He was talking about flesh and blood. About resurrection and new life. They were talking and looking at it out of stone, of hearts of stone. And he was talking about hearts of flesh. That see. They missed it. But the cool thing is, the disciples, they were soaking it up. They were soaking it up. They remembered that Jesus said these things, that after he had risen again, they remembered he said, after three days, I will raise this temple. They remembered and they started putting these things together. See, the thing is, and I was thinking about this as I was working through this passage this week. You know, last week we were talking about the wedding in Cana, and John gives us this detail, that after three days, they went to a wedding at Cana. Now, I'm not sure yet if I'm making too much of this, but as I was working through this passage, I was thinking again. There's that, st- that phrase again, after three days. And maybe this wedding at Cana has some symbolic, and we were talking about it last week, I believe it does, has a symbolic connection with Jesus as the great bridegroom. The groom, the, the groom of the church. Jesus is the husband, the one who loves his church. I believe that when he rose again, there was some connection there, some sort of um, new level, sort of new revelation about what it means to be the great bridegroom. But you have to do that. Somehow. We have to keep working at that. But you start seeing these things about three days throughout John's gospel. And it keeps pointing to the cross. So I, as I was working through this, I realized that we need to remain open to God. We need to remain open to God's spirit, continuing to show us who Christ is, who he is. I know some of you have been following Jesus for a long time, decades. And yet I encourage you to remain open. 
For those of you who've only maybe been following a few years, I encourage you to remain open to what God is showing you. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a pastor, you know, quote unquote. I've gone to seminary and I'm, you know, supposed to be the professional now. Please don't ever call me the professional. <laughs> but sometimes people joke about that. But, and I'm still daily learning new things about Jesus. Every time I open God's word, it, it, is, it is so exciting to me because I continue to see in new ways who he is. That's the importance of this, this season right now. Like I've mentioned a few times, we're in this season of epiphany. It's this Latin word for revelation. You, think, you may have heard the word, like, I had an epiphany. We stay or we recognize a season as a church to remember again who Jesus is and to, to listen again for God to, to show us maybe in a new way who he is in a way that will continue to, to shape us and to guide us to follow him. I think about these disciples and I want to encourage you in this. Encourage you to continue following Christ. Continue drawing close to him and, and remaining open to, to what God is showing you about him. Continue pursuing Christ through prayer and through fasting. Praying, Lord God, I want to see you. I want to know more about you. Please show yourself to me again. That we continue drawing close to God through reading the scriptures, through coming and hearing God's word preached, through spending time on our own throughout the week, opening up God's word and digging into the passage. I know you guys are busy. Trust me, I know how busy you are. But I tell you this one thing. Spending time with God will change everything else. But also, I encourage you to get together in groups. Because one person studying the Bible is good. But if one person relies only on their own understanding, sometimes it can go off the rails. So I encourage you to keep gathering in groups. Talk with your faithful friends and say, you know, I've been working through this, and what do you think about that? Let's, let's look at this together and encourage each other. So I encourage you to, to remain open to what God is showing you. He continues to reveal himself to you. See, sometimes people hear this gospel, this good news, and they get it. Sometimes, though, they hear it and they refuse, they refuse to see it. But I encourage you to keep drawing close and be open. This morning, I pray that you hear God speaking to you. I pray that as we've been working through this passage, Again, you see that God is holy. That Jesus is a man on fire for God. That while we have this constant image of him as a shepherd, walking through green fields, holding cuddly lambs, that he is also the Lion of Judah. A man on fire for God, passionate about God's mission, about God's holiness. But I also 